Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Hey, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. And I know last week we uh, did a little lesson called Half-Life, talking about how, you know, at least half of life is learning to deal with no. And that is one of the hardest words. Maybe it's the hardest word, at least in the English language and and whatever the, the language equivalent, I'm willing to guess that no is the hardest thing for us to hear. No, and I think running a close second to no is probably not now, not now. I know when I've had to tell people no or not now, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't pleasant. So that was last week, learning to deal with the negative commandments, the boundaries, the limitations, and so forth. This week, I would like to take that in a different direction. And instead of talking about the half-life, the half of life we spend dealing with the no's or the not now's, let's talk about a double life instead of a half-life. Let's do a double life. Pretty much the reason for it goes back to the same thing that happened last week. It The, the ideas kind of sprouted on Sunday of last week as well as to topic. And then the same thing happened this week, last Sunday, as we were studying a Torah portion, Yitro. And the description there, of course, is the Israelites going out to meet Adonai at the mountain, at Mount Sinai. And there's so much real estate given to that experience, um, to what they were seeing, what they were smelling, what they were feeling, the the Ten Commandments themselves, it just seems like they're just embedded within the, the Holy One trying to describe to us the experience and help us stand in their sandals as much as possible. And so as we were studying the passages here, primarily chapter 19, it says in verse 16, verse 16 it says, On the third day, when it was becoming morning, there was thunder and lightning and a heavy cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the shofar was very powerful. And the entire people that was in the camp shuddered. Moses brought the people forth from the camp toward God. And they stood under the mountain. Mount Sinai was smoking in its entirety because Hashem had descended upon it in the fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of the lion pit. And the entire mountain shuddered exceedingly. You know, just imagine yourself standing there, but you get to do that every single year. You get to have the same experience. And that day is called Shavuot. It's the day of Pentecost. It's the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. It falls on this particular day. So every year we have the opportunity of standing at the mountain, smelling the smoke, seeing the cloud, hearing the thunder, seeing the lightning, listening to the sound of the shofar, feeling the shuddering, the whole mountain the earth underneath our feet shaking, even that feeling that the mountain is over the top of us. But what what stood out to me in this description is in verse 17. It says, Moses brought the people forth from the camp toward God, and they stood under the mountain. 
it's like the mountain itself became the chupa. It became the marriage canopy. It's as if, you know, when we think of the the words of the Ten Commandments, that it's almost as if they form this great talit. They form a Mount Sinai of his commandments. And we stand under that mountain. And uh, each year we can renew our commitment and say, like the Israelites, we will do and we will hear. You just tell us what the commandments are. We're going to do them. We're going to hear them. Of course, we always know it's not that simple. But what caught my eye was a comment that Rashi made concerning that particular verse where it says, Moses brought the people forth from the camp toward God. And he describes it where that the phrase there, likrat ha'elohim, toward the God, literally in Hebrew. And it says, this tells us that the divine presence went out towards them like a bridegroom who goes out to greet his bride. And so what does Moses do? He's like that friend of the bridegroom. He brings the bride out to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom has come out to meet his bride at this experience. And Moses stands in between them and he takes the bride out of the camp of Israel and leads her to the bridegroom. And you know, imagine, you know, marriages are usually pretty somber, at least during the ceremony. It, it might heat up a little bit at the, the reception, but typically a marriage ceremony is very, you know, quiet and solemn and respectful and somber. But this particular betrothal is taking place with a whole lot of noise, a whole lot of like, it's not even a smoke machine. It's real smoke. There's fire. We know there was hail. We know that there was uh, the clouds were also dripping water. We find in other places. Uh, it's like the thing is on fire, and the whole earth is shaking under their feet. So what an experience! I mean, if you're going to get married, why not do it that way, right? Lots of smoke and fire rather than lighter. Anyway, that you know, in, in a lot of Christian traditions, you hear a lot. I mean, the artwork the books that are written, music that's composed, so much of it, the theme of it is being the bride. And, you know, that's always the question, who is the bride? Who are the friends of the bridegroom? And often, you know, what was explained to me, I asked a rabbi one time, I said, why are there so many different characters used uh, to describe the Holy One. I mean, look at all the names he has and so forth. Because in my mind, I was thinking, you know, why are there so many different parables? Because it is hard. Like, are we talking about the guests at the wedding? Are we talking about the bride at the wedding? Are we talking about the bridesmaids, the attendants, the servants? Who are we talking about here? Who, you know, who am I? And the way that he explained it, when you tell a parable, you'll use different parables to describe different aspects, maybe of the same person. And so when Yeshua tells lots of parables, he's showing us different characteristics of his people. And of course, one of those personas, I don't know if that's a great word, but we'll try it, of Israel as the chosen people is the bride, the bride. And I wonder sometimes if, you know, in the thousands of years since this happened, how many people know that that identity as a bride of Messiah, this is where it started. 
this was the day that that particular identity was birthed. And of course, it's progressed. Like I say, lots of art, music, books, debates, you name it, parables. But I was thinking in that experience, what is that telling us? Well, as we keep reading in that same section, you know, there's even more description. There's a lot of going up and down, back and forth, people apparently falling dead. Um, that's the Jewish understanding of why they ask Moses to go talk to Adonai and bring the words back, because when they heard the first commandment, the second commandment, it killed them. And then he had to resurrect them and stand them back up on their feet. The The experience was just so awesome. Remember when, um, I believe it's the Revelation of John, he talks about falling on his face like a dead man. Pretty much the same experience. When you encounter the strength of divine presence in this sinful human body, the response tends to be in scripture, yes, you just fall on your face like a dead person. In the case of Nadav and Avihu, they didn't get up uh, because they were in a state of disobedience when they encountered that active disobedience. In this case, he's resurrecting them. He understands, yes, you're, you're in human flesh. This is very hard for you. This is very difficult for you. And you know, the more resistance you have to what you're about to hear, I think probably the more prone you are to, you know, instead of falling like a dead man, it's literally falling, you know, and being dead. But they, uh, you know, in Jewish tradition, he resurrects them. And, you know, after a couple of commandments, they go to Moses and say, how about you mediate between us? Because in this condition, we're not able. And so Moses agrees to do that, to go back and forth and, you know, to take the words, um, deliver them to the people. And then the people answer, yes, we will honor our father and mother. No, we won't steal. And he goes back and forth. And in that way, it's bearable for them. But we have a, a better advocate than Moses. Moses did a great job. He, he, did, he did a wonderful job in his generation. But it was the prototype of a plan that involved a prophet like Moses, but who was going to have a better relationship to the father. And so that's why we said uh, last week, you know, a good lawyer knows the law, good lawyer knows the Torah, but a great lawyer knows the judge. Yeshua knows the father. He is a direct reflection of the father. In Yeshua, we can see the father. And so he's an even better advocate for us. Then Moses, he provides that pathway similar the, to the way that Moses did. Moses kind of set the pattern, and then we can look at Yeshua and say, oh, that's, you know, it, it helps me understand Yeshua's work. That Moses is the one that stands between us and makes intercession. He leads the bride to the bridegroom as a proto-prophecy of what Yeshua came to do, to lead the bride to the bridegroom. He is that uh, intercessor. He is the lawyer. He is the advocate, and he knows the judge. So he knows how to make intercession for us. That's why he's the one to provide the path of salvation. And by the way, the, the name that is used as we go into verse 20, it says God spoke all these words to say that particular name of God, there is Elohim, Elohim, which is the name of God that is used in the creation. And that specific name, when it is used, you're supposed to understand it implies a God of judgment. Creation was a matter of judgment. Uh, you say, well, how exactly was he judging in the creation? Well, he had to set the boundaries. And that's something that a judge do does. 
that's what they do, judge does. They set the boundaries. And so if you don't know what the boundaries are, then you can't judge. If you don't know the law, you can't judge. And so in order to create life, you have to set the boundaries, know what the boundaries are, enforce the boundaries so that life can exist within them, understanding that if you exceed those boundaries, you're entering into a realm of death. And it can't be good or very good outside of those boundaries. So yeah, even though he's creating life, at the very same time, he's creating those boundaries of life that in the end, the boundary itself judges us. His word stands forever. His word is the boundary. If we step outside of his word, then that very word will judge us. Right? It's it's not even a matter of him, you know, actively saying, I judge you. By stepping outside of his word, you've judged yourself. You've punished yourself. You've chosen that yourself. And so as we were reading this and thinking about the implications here, especially as we get over into the first commandment, right? And so let's look, let's look at the first commandment here. Let me. It's in Exodus 20, and let's just read the first five verses. There's more to be understood. Um, he gives more details about idolatry, but that gives us enough to start with, all right? Uh, it says, then Elohim spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. All right. He's acknowledging right there pretty much. And, you know, not just here, we can look in other places, but that's not really the point of the lesson today. There are created entities, right? There's beings out there. There are spiritual beings out there and they have territory. <clears throat> they have assigned territory. They might be ruling specific things in the heavenlies. We can see that in the book of Revelation, that there's angels of certain things. We also read that there's an angel of the waters, but he said, no, don't make even an idol with the likeness of something in the water. There are angels over the natural world. There's angels of the four winds. There's all sorts of principalities and powers out there. He acknowledges that. But he says, I am Yotevahe, your Elohim. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. These principalities and powers did not do this for you. So don't turn them into something that they are not. And um, as we were studying, the rabbi made a comment that even though we don't have a lot of idolatry in terms of objects today, certain nations, yes, but in terms of idolatry today, you're not likely to see somebody go into the forest, cut down a tree, carve an image, set it up in the house, and then start worshiping it. Now, we're seeing that more and more in the United States. This is really weird. You know, you can go into certain restaurants and they've got idols and they're literally making offerings of food to those idols. And you have to kind of keep an eye open, need to know where you're eating sometimes and maybe make different choices. Uh, but he said, at its core, worshiping an idol is to be double-minded. It's to be double-minded. And I'm thinking, wow. I've heard that before because when I was in high school, I memorized um, First and Second Thessalonians, uh, James, and First and Second Peter. 
in King James, believe it or not. And the way you memorize something is typically the way you're going to remember it forever. And so when I think of any passage out of those five books of the Bible, it always turns out in King James English. But that did jog my memory. And I thought back, you know, uh, to last week where we looked at the two different types of commandments, the yes commandments, the you shalls, and the no commandments, you shall not. And how much more we like the yeses than the noes, and how difficult it is to manage those boundaries. And so the key apparently is how we develop our relationship to the commandments, whether they're yeses or noes. What I found long ago is that life didn't always give me what I wanted. You know, sometimes it starts when you're a kid. You don't always get for supper or lunch or breakfast exactly what you wanted to eat. It's an appetite. It's part of the soul, right? And especially if you're in someone else's house and you have to be respectful and they put something in front of you, you know, like say an egg over easy and you're thinking, I'll vomit if I eat that. Because like there's runny stuff in the middle of that. And you figure out a way. Sometimes you have to be clever. You figure out a way to kind of eat the white part and kind of move the yellow part around where it looks like maybe you ate it. And, you know, sometimes you can wiggle your way out of it that way. But what if it's something horrible, like say Brussels sprouts? You're not going to be able to move Brussels sprouts around on your plate enough for them to notice you did need a bite. Like, ew, gross. And so you had to figure out how to eat Brussels sprouts. And so I learned that when I had to do something I didn't want to do, didn't like to do, I could play a head game with myself. Let's just call it a head game. And with, say, Brussels sprouts, which I intensely dislike, okay, hey, they looked like cabbage. All right. So in my mind, it's like, I know I have to eat this Brussels sprout or at least enough of it to make it look like I ate enough. I would maybe peel off the little leaves of it. I would imagine, you know, I put myself like in a field at a farm and I would envision the cabbages and how fun it would be to be on a farm and pick my own food. And, you know, I've just imagined myself doing that, you know, harvesting a cabbage and taking the sign and cooking it. And I could choke it down if I just made up a little story in my head. And so that worked. I could distract myself long enough that I could choke down the Brussels sprouts. No. I never could handle Brussels sprouts, right? Never learned to like them. But there were some foods I did. There were certain foods I found out that over time, maybe I didn't like them then, but if I could discipline my thinking about that food or even that chore, there were certain chores I hated doing. If I could find a different way of thinking about it and maybe, you know, like I said, make up stories in my head, then I could get through it. And over time, it changed the way I felt about it. And it was much easier to do it. And so sometimes with the commandment, there might be a commandment you don't really care for. But you can discipline your mind as it concerns that commandment. And like we said last week, you can be very, yes, you can be very enthusiastic, like, yes, and no, I will not steal. It's how we engage a relationship with those commandments. And we can discipline ourselves over time. We can engage the ones we don't like with as much enthusiasm as the ones we do like. And you know what? In the end, that's what makes a disciple. Remember, discipline is the root of disciple. 
a disciple is not just somebody who knows a lot of stuff. That's wrong. Right? Just go put that on the wrong list. <laughs> a disciple is not somebody who just knows a bunch of stuff. A disciple is somebody who does a bunch of stuff through discipline, right? And in, in our case, we are partnering with the Holy Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to discipline us in the word, the word we love, as well as the word we don't love nearly as much. And in that process, if we will partner with the Holy Spirit, then we will change over time, which is evidence that we are a disciple, that we have yielded to this self-discipline. And remember, Yeshua told Peter, he says, Peter, you're going to change. You just got through denying me when you said you wouldn't. You couldn't pray an hour with me. That's going to change. All the things that Peter was unable to do following Yeshua, he says, there's going to be a turnaround, Peter. You're going to be a different person when I'm done with you. I'm going to continue working with you even after I go back to the Father. And instead of being somebody who always wants to be in charge, somebody who thinks of the quick answer, you know, pull out the sword, strike them all dead. I want to sit beside you on the throne. We, we know how Peter thought. He says, you know what? You're going to be transformed into a person. You're going to be a disciple. You're going to be a true disciple when you start walking in the things that I've taught you. You're no longer going to want to be somebody who's always in charge, leading the Holy Spirit around. And instead, you are going to be led of the Holy Spirit in every circumstance. In fact, somebody's even going to lead you to your death. And you're going to be willing to go. We're going to be able, able to yield in the end, even the time and the way that we die. That's pretty incredible. And so, yeah, sometimes we get the nose faster. It is easier to get the nose. However, a disciple over time no longer understands. Why do we remember the nose? Because we don't like the word. <laughs> That's this. Somebody can tell us yes a hundred times. What will we remember? The one time they tell us no. Yeah, so those kind of stand out. It's the thou shalt not, those stick. And they they agitate us a little bit. And the, that's why we have to change our relationship to both the yes and the no commandments. It has to be a matter of yielding to the Holy Spirit. Because if we can't take the simple commandment, because some of these commandments are not that hard, right? at least the ones that apply to us, they're just not that hard. They're, they're pretty simple. And if we can accept the yeses and the noes of the simple commandments, what are we going to do with the daily dilemmas? Because our daily dilemmas, folks, you know what? Have you ever noticed that the stuff you go through from day to day, the test or the trial doesn't come with the commandment tag attached to it? it says, this is what you do and this is how you do it. No, it's a situation. And it's up to you to go back to the word and try to figure out which commandment does this fall under? How do I know what to do? Because it didn't come with the instructions. It's just this thing that happened and I don't know what to do. If we can't do the simple ones, then those daily trials that don't come with the tag, commandment number, I don't know, 311, <laughs> they don't come like that. It'd be nice if they did. At least you'd have a reference point to start but they don't. The key is for a discipline is you turn 
not just every commandment into life, you turn every one of your tests and trials into life. And the very first commandment really is going to tell us how to do that. It's going to show us where we're vulnerable. It's going to show us the places where we're most likely to make an error. And it starts right here. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. So you have this commandment not to put another created entity as an Elohim, small e, God. Elohim can be a judge, an appointed ruler. I think that's sometimes why it's translated as God with a small g. But there's only one Elohim, God with a big E. You know, if we're talking about capital letters in English. So he's saying, yes, there are other entities out there in the world, other spiritual entities. However, he's saying there's only one creator and all these other entities he created. He's saying there is nothing else created ever that could possibly be Elohim. By definition, Elohim is the creator of all things. And any other created Elohim, that is any other created judge, appointed ruler, power, governor, you know, whatever it is, even if it's a demon, it's not Elohim. It's created. It's just another created thing originating from Elohim. When he says, you shall have no other gods in front of me, before me, everything else has to go behind him. He's the first, and there's nothing behind them that can compare to him. And so I thought, okay, let's break this down. You know, he's telling us that worshiping idols is to be double-minded. Let's keep digging. Let's try to find something here that's going to help us. If this is the first commandment, there's something important we're missing here. Because I don't think he would put this commandment first if it wasn't something that every single generation needed to know, regardless of whether they had ever had some carved image that they were tempted to bow down to. It has to be deeper than the way that it was practiced in ancient times. So in Hebrew, it says, Lo yihiyeh lecha Elohim acherim al panai. And so I thought, Let's just translate this very literally. And, and there's going to be more than one way to translate this, by the way. When you're putting together the English words, part of the challenge of translation is knowing what the original intent of the Hebrew is to know how to put it into English. But I thought, well, let's just stick with a very literal English translation that maybe will not make much sense when we put it together. And that's where the translator comes in and rearranges the word so it will make sense to an English speaker. But I went you know, farther back. I peeled back. I just tried to get very literal with the words here, which is something you know, very similar to what the rabbis do when they're trying to decode a text sometimes. So you will not or be not to yourself another God on my face. <laughs> so, you know, does it literally mean that, that, that you can't be on his face? Number one, literally, that, that can't happen. But in the wording, in the grammar of the Hebrew text, something stood out to me. It was another way of saying why, you know, English translators being, you know, nice to us, put it in words we understand, you shall not have any other gods before me. Well, in front of me, 
you know, like Panay, my face. Don't be another God on my face. That's the same. That's how you say, you know, don't have any other gods ahead of me, before me. Because see what's, you here's your face. Anything here is in front of your face. So he's saying, don't put anything in front of me because he's first and there's there's nothing ahead of him. He is the originator of all things. But it made sense as well to me, thinking about the ancient practices, that when a human being fabricates some sort of image from wood, stone, clay, any other substance, or uh, in some cases, they will attribute the spirit of Elohim to some existing created substance, like a tree, you know, a living tree, water, clouds. In either case, what the human being has done is to put a face on Elohim. And so the urge in a human being to do this is so strong that the first commandment is a yes paired with a no. Yes, he is Elohim. No, don't tamper with him by fabricating an image to put a face on him, for it will be inaccurate, and it's only ever going to be a product of human imagination. Remember, it emphasizes in, in that passage that we read that they did not see a form. They only heard a voice. They saw the sounds, but they saw the sounds. They did not see a human form. And so we're left to imagine what he looks like. And often we do. Uh, I saw a sign once, and I can't remember which person said it. I believe it was a philosopher. He said, imagination is man's most godlike characteristic. Well, that can be a good thing and a bad thing. You know, when we look around at the creation and we can see, I don't know that there's a an English word that that really transmits what I'm thinking, Luke. Because if I say imagination, the word image is in it. Well, he's the one forming the image. If we think of genius, you know, and it makes me think of a genie in a bottle, you know, some sort of little imp-like spiritual entity that's a nothing. The vastness of who Elohim is, the creative ability that he has, we pin a word on it like imagination. And so I can see where that guy would say imagination is man's most godlike characteristic because human beings do have the capacity for imagination. In fact, at the Tower of Babel, he's like, oh, there's nothing they've imagined that they're not able to do if they all get together. But we can also say, I think, that based on where this first commandment is placed at the beginning, that imagination is also man's most godlike characteristic but not with a capital G. What I mean is it's man's tendency to want to put a face on God. It's man's tendency to want to create things, not giving attribution to the creator who created them, but having that feeling of being God. And this we're very vulnerable to this. Trying to put a face on Elohim and trying to play Elohim according to our own imagination instead of using what we would call imagination in order to exercise his commandments and his will on earth. 
And that's what happens. The moment we try to put a face on Elohim, we become susceptible to idolatry. And what are we doing? That object, we want to work on our behalf. We want that object, that thing, or that imagination to bring us success, to bring us health, to bring us sustenance, good, peace, prosperity, comfort, joy, all the things that Elohim supplies for us, we begin to manipulate. And we try to put a face on it according to our own imagination. Yeshua gave us the pattern to pray. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we tend to do is instead dictate his will on earth, which means we're trying to dictate it in heaven. Instead of partnering with Elohim and saying, Elohim, what do you want me to have? We know you're all for healing, but sometimes you don't heal. Sometimes the healing comes after we cross over to the other side. That's when you heal us. You don't heal us on our timetable, but yours. Same thing with economics. You know, Father, how much prosperity can I handle without it damaging my walk with you? There are so many things that we think we know better than him when we need it and how much we need. We make up our own, in our own imagination, we know how much money we need. We know how much success we need. We know how much healing we need. And then we begin to put a face on it. We begin to dictate to him the time, the place, how much, how far. And instead of saying, Father, teach me a spiritual discipline in this. I want to agree with your will in heaven. Whatever your will is in heaven, I want what happens to me on earth to reflect that. I don't want to try to stick a face on you. Instead, I just want to be created in your image according to your likeness. Make me like you. I don't want to make you like me. That would be a problem. And so in ancient times, what people would do is they would make gods or seek out gods of prosperity, maybe, or fertility, or strength, or war, just whatever they need, they had a God for it, because they put a face on Elohim. And like, for instance, in war, you know, Psalm 1834, we know that Elohim teaches my hands to war. And so many times in the history of Israel, they would uh, go to war without consulting Elohim, rather than partner with him in time, they would try to put a face on him. Just like, think of the spies. There was a time they were supposed to cross the Jordan and take the land and rebelled, right? That offer had a shelf life with that generation. And then later they said, oh, you know what? We were probably wrong. Let's go do that. He's like, no, don't do it now. Don't do it. You didn't partner with me the first time. You're not prepared. And then they tried to go up, didn't turn out well. And so rather than doing what they were told to do, exercising the will of heaven on earth, they put a face on Elohim and expected to him to align with their decisions. You know, for people who sought out or made idols, they would consult these principalities and powers. Uh, they would even do, you know, witchcraft, divination. And in the end, if they wanted to make war, they did. 
it didn't matter what the results were. It, they would always bend it the way that they wanted it to go. If they didn't want to make war, they would bend it that way. They put a face on it. But when you worship these entities, it requires imagination. It requires effort. It requires time. And you have to take your faith and you have to invest it in that entity. But what you have to admit in the long run is that it's just a reflection of you. You've turned to it, but in the end, it's only you. See, you, you might be trying to dictate to some entity or appeal to some entity to grant your wishes. You know, speaking of genies and bottles, you're trying to apportion your wealth, your health, your success, all of these things that we turn to Elohim for. Instead, you want to make up your own menu rather than praying, Father, according to your will, let it be done to me on earth and give me the grace to deal with it. If what's on your menu was not necessarily on the one I drew up. And so instead, they would turn to these other spiritual beings, these other created beings, and appeal to these beings because they do have power. That power is assigned by Elohim in order for it to manage some particular realm that it's assigned to, whether it's in the heavens above, the earth below, or in the water. So yes, those entities are out there, but they are not the creator, and they are not worthy of our time, attention, and resources. No. He says, don't do that. Don't turn to them. They're not ours to petition. They're not ours to order around. But what they would do is they would select attributes of certain entities. And what they're doing is exactly what he said, don't do. Don't put a face on it. You're trying to put a human face on it. Remember the, the stories of mythology you had to learn, of Greek and Roman mythology, or the animal deities are trying to put a physical face on Elohim? Don't do that, he says. So yeah, he's hidden from us much of the time, but he doesn't need our masks. We need to believe that he is the creator. We need to turn to him in every need so that we don't live a double life. We don't, we can't claim to worship Elohim if we're putting our trust in other entities because they're all created entities just like we are. That's the way it was done back then. They would literally put a mask on him by creating an image. But today, how is it done? Well, again, that was the insight. It's to be double-minded, right? In ancient times, it was easier to see it because they would literally put the face. They would put the mask on Elohim. They would create the object and say, this is him. Today, it's a little more, little more subtle. Today, we do it, again, by being double-minded. And it's by putting faith in the leopard spots. So going back, remember, we, we did a history of the beast kingdoms. And we didn't just look at the, the progression of the kingdoms. We looked at specific characteristics of some of those kingdoms to understand how the beast exists today. The leopard of Greece is a huge insight, by the way. Because when we went back into the Hebrew of what the spots were on the leopard, it represents organizations, humanly formed organizations. And so with Greece, they gave us things like medicine, art, philosophy, education, drama, entertainment, military, government, politics, sports, music, 
And then the Romans come along, the next beast kingdom comes along, it takes those ideas, those organizations, expands them. And even after the Roman Empire fell, the world continues to expand and use those systems to influence people, to control people. And over time, human beings have been conditioned to look to those organizations to supply every human need. And when we think these organizations are going to supply our needs, then we begin to put faith in them. And when we begin to put faith in them, that we are supposed to put an Elohim who supplies all our needs, what we are doing is trying to put a God on Elohim's face. These organizations are to be used lawfully according to the instructions of the Torah. They're not to be trusted to do us good. They are not to be entrusted with the attributes of Elohim. We're in Babylon. The whole earth right now is Babylon. And that golden head of Babylon, it's still attached to the whole image. It's one image. The beast is one image. It starts with Babylon's golden head. You get Medo-Persia's silver chest, Greece's bronze abdomen. You've got Rome's iron legs. And then those organizations that have come all the way down from the head and just kept reforming and expanding. Now they're all over the earth. It's the iron and clay feet. But we know that King Messiah, the stone who's, you know, that rock that is hewn out without human hands, he's going to come and he's going to smash the feet of those world organizations because they're being worshipped. People put their trust in them. People turn to them for all their needs. And once he smashes the feet, once he destroys those organization, organizations, it's going to have a cumulative effect on the whole image. And the whole image will fall when he destroys and wipes out those systems. Now, the question is, we're in Babylon. How do we avoid using those systems? You really can't. Remember, you're in Babylon. There's a key to understanding what your relationship is to be to these systems. Some of them, absolutely, you know, you know from its inception that it's a sinful one. Others, it's not so obvious. There's going to be good points and bad points to it. Can you go to a doctor? Sure. Should you vote? Yes. Is it okay to write or to paint? Absolutely. Can you play sports? Yes. Should you defend your country? Uh-huh. Can you receive an education? You need one. But remember, these systems have been corrupted, and people are putting their trust in corrupt systems. You have to constantly evaluate the system because you're in Babylon, but you're not of it. Come out of her as a, a yes <laughs> commandment. Come on out. But you can't come out of the world itself. And the key, like I said, you said, well, how do I know? You know, if it's okay to play sports, how do I know if it's okay to go to a public education institution? How do I know how to vote? He gave us a key, Revelation 18, 4, about living in Babylon. It says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. So what's the key? It's not a place to go. It's who you should be. And that is, if you have put your trust in Elohim as the creator, then you have submitted to his word, to his law, to his covenant, and you have committed your life 
to walking in his way, which means you're avoiding the sins that have corrupted Babylon and especially its systems. And right now, I believe he is systematically exposing the sin in every system. So we will be careful not to commit those sins. Even as we might be in the system or use the system, he's saying, in that process, evaluate what you're doing. Don't go to sleep. Don't sign anything without reading it. And make sure that in being within the system, if there is sin going on, don't do that. Being in the earth and its systems is inevitable, but participating in its sinfulness is not. And so we have 10 simple commandments to help us master those yeses and nos of the word. We know that there's 613 hanging on those. Well, actually, it would be deduct 10. That would be 603 hanging on the 10, which I'll hang on the two. But those systems have to be destroyed eventually by King Messiah Yeshua because they're corrupt. And then he will rebuild the government. The government will be on his shoulders. In the meantime, what can we do? Learn the word so that while we await his government, that we will not participate in any sinfulness that might be you know, part of the influence of that organization or even the coercion of that organization. They're being exposed right now. So when you're disappointed in your sports, if the Cowboys choke in the playoffs, it's not the end of the world. They do it every year. You can enjoy sports, but how much faith do you put in that team? How much faith do you put in these other things that you might participate in? If you're leaning on them too hard, then you're going to be super disappointed because in the end, they're just humanly imagined organizations. Many of them meet needs, right? Just like these created powers of heaven and earth. He created principalities and powers to meet needs. But should those principalities and powers or should those organizations begin to exercise sinful power, sinful influence, and sinful control over human beings, especially because human beings are using them because they're deriving the benefit from them that in ancient times, they sought after images, you know, gods. They would turn to that God to get what they wanted instead of turning to Elohim to get what maybe they didn't want. When we use organizations in the same way, then they begin to function like a face on Elohim. And it's our responsibility to never let these things replace our faith in Elohim as the Lord of armies, as the healer, as the provider, the creator. All these names that he has remind us we don't need these gods. We don't need these organizations to supply all our needs. We can use them, but ultimately there is none other than him in terms of the creator. Deuteronomy 4.35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other beside him. There is no other beside him. Ain od milvado. Nothing more than him. Everything else is behind him. Don't put a face in front of him. Don't put a mask on him. Don't put your human imagination on his face. Instead, turn to him as the source. And that's what the rabbi was saying. When you can't get the first commandment, you're going to be double-minded. When you think any other power or force on earth or heaven or below the earth is a source rather than the one who created us, 
then we're double-minded. So that drove me back to James, James 1, 1 through 8. James is explaining this very thing. And in this letter that James is writing, he's writing it to a specific group of people. He's writing it to the 12 tribes who were scattered abroad, who were dispersed abroad. He's not writing it to the Jews in Judea. Apparently, this is something that needs to be internalized inside of those who have been scattered out to the nations for a specific purpose. They're vulnerable in a way out there in those nations that the Judeans in his day and time were not so vulnerable. It's something we need to know. It's something vital. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.